Welcome to Future Fossils Podcast. This is Michael Garfield. And this is Evan Snyder. Uh, welcome uh, to another interview edition. Uh, we have Ashley Dawson. There's a book coming out called Extinction, A Radical History. Uh, so this is going to be a perhaps heavy conversation, but uh, there's light to be found in the darkest places uh, wherever you look. So maybe we'll uh, be laughing here about some very intense stuff, or maybe not. Uh, but it's going to be interesting, as always, and a great conversation. So we're glad to have you all listening with us as well. So welcome to the show, Ashley. Thank you so much, Evan. Um, it's good to be uh, on the show with you and Michael. You've just written this very powerful, short, potent book, kind of a, uh, it calls itself a radical history, but it's, it's uh, in some respects, kind of a manifesto. And... Um, I'm curious to know, I mean, you're a professor of English, so uh, wh whence the interest in the sixth mass extinction, and, and like, how did you come to write this book? Yeah, well, you know, I am a professor of English, as you say, and so I'm constantly aware of the fact that I'm treading on territory that's very unfamiliar, and I look forward to whatever interlocutors I can encounter who can... Uh, set me straight on any things relating to the current extinction, um, to the scientific elements of it that I'm getting incorrect. But um, where the reason I'm interested in writing about it is that I think that the way in which all of this gets framed is really important. Um, and that the, so it's not just the empirical data or, you know, some kind of understanding that comes from conservation biology that's important, but rather the way in which people see or do not see the crisis. Um, and specifically, I became interested in these issues because I'm um, a post-colonial critic. Uh, I studied with Edward Said, Rob Nixon, and I'm McClintock, and I'm interested in what's happening to people in the global south. Uh, and the Indian environmentalist Ramachandra Guha has quite famously written about the vast majority of human beings calling them ecosystem people in the sense that they rely directly on their relationship to the environment to um, carry on life. And so when you think about folks through a post-colonial lens, you inevitably have to start thinking about environmental issues and about the ways in which what's happening to the environment, um, particularly in uh, tropical countries, post-colonial countries, is affecting people. Um, so starting from there, I began to think about not just what's happening to people, but about the interactions between people and the flora and fauna um, on the planet. And uh, that led me naturally enough to thinking about ex the extinction crisis um, and the way in which it was imperiling life in general. Wow. Well, so, it's very interesting, actually, given the, uh, the background audio we have for your voice, a uh, beautiful irony that uh, it's lush with birds right now. Uh, obviously, we can't lose sight of that being an indicator of a different track than what you've just uh, mentioned. You know, it would be somewhat comical to use as uh, uh, one might use a snowball in the center of Congress to prove that global warming is a farce. Um, <laughs> Far less lush of, with birds than it would have been 200 years ago had we the ability to make an, a recording of that. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely true. Um, I am on vacation. Usually when I'm in New York City, you would hear nothing but the sound of garbage, um, <laughs> trucks and diesel vehicles of various different kinds. So it just happens to be the day that you're catching me. Your book is largely, uh, as you mentioned, a post-colonial critique 
of the the relationship between extinction and capitalism. Capitalism is a system set up that uh, has to endlessly grow, and on a planet with finite resources, it's it's uh, ecocidal and therefore suicidal. There's like another author coming out of New York. You know, I'm I'm sure you read Douglas Rushkoff's stuff, and and he just published uh, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. You make a case for the redistribution of the uh, the accumulated goods and wealth of of the world's you know uber rich, which is a very noble thing, but he he sort of offers an alternative, which it's not, in his view, capitalism per se. It's uh, this particular style of capitalism that has created this issue and that he, he sees moving into a digital economy as offering us at least the potential for uh, a, a digital distributism that precedes and, and he would, he suggests is, is a more uh, practical or like uh, like actuate like actual approach that like it's it's easier to imagine how we can build businesses that do this rather than engage in the kind of like anti-capitalist uh, stance you know that, that it may be a more viable political solution. I don't know what are you, what are your thoughts on that. Well, I, <laughs> we're just going to jump right like both feet right in here. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a, a great question. I mean, I guess I would say that uh, Rushkoff should go out and talk to a, an Uber driver and ask her or him how things are going. Um, you know, what kind of wage they're making. Um, a lot of scholarship coming out these days, a lot of research coming out on the um, sharing economy and things like Uber, uh, which really shows that while digital technology can create person-to-person interactions that certainly are politically important. I mean, um, you know, the the Arab Spring and Occupy uh, would not have been possible, clearly, without the Internet and without the kinds of uh, global interactions and peer-to-peer connections that the new technologies have made possible. So certainly they can facilitate amazing connections, but they can also facilitate, as Uber, I think, shows, the most rampant forms of self-exploitation and deregulation and um, disruption that... Uh, deteriorates people's economic situation. So, um, yeah, I would argue that we need to think about capitalism as a system which has been around for 500 years. And as you observed, that's what I do in my book. I don't just talk about neoliberalism. You know, I think that's the kind of neo... That's the kind of liberal line to argue it's just a problem with the current version of capitalism that we have and that we could maybe go back to a kind of Keynesian welfare state like we had in the early 20th century, or we could move forward into some wonderful digital capitalist economy that's based on sharing, et cetera, et cetera, and that everything will be hunky-dory. Um, and I would really challenge that and say, no, that capitalism as a system based on infinite accumulation on a limited planet has to be overthrown. And if you look at the last 500 years or so of capitalism, you can really see that it's been fundamentally ecocidal and that if we're going to survive as a species and, you know, at, essentially as a kind of viable planetary ecosystem um, in the, the near term, we need to really abolish capitalism. And that the state is going to have an absolutely important role. You know, taking over the state and using it to regulate capitalism is ultimately going to be really important. And I think the left is hamstrung by the failures to 
be able to create an egalitarian political system using the state in the uh, recent past, you know, in the 20th century. So nobody wants to talk about that. Um, and so we can't really imagine a future and we're stuck. I think we really have to overcome that and uh, think about ways to redistribute um, and to take over the state if necessary in order to do that with progressive social. I mean, how do you feel about, for example, the notion of the solutions that seems very timely right now? There's a huge conversation going around on the issue of technological unemployment and universal basic income as a solution to that issue. And you mentioned the possibility of providing a basic income to citizens of the global south uh, as a way of countering the the issue that we have here. I would love for you to, to go into a little depth about your critique of uh, you know the various globalist financial policies that are attempting to set up the you know establish financial value in like a healthy rainforest and then trade that on the world market as an ecosystem service which is being presented by people you know uh, like the uh, Christian Schwagerl, the author of the Anthropocene. The book, The Anthropocene, um, which, you know, is, is definitely a very sort of like European modern liberal text, but you can tell that he is conflicted about commodifying the last, you know, sort of numberless spaces that we have. And, and given that, you know, given that you are such a, a fierce critic of this assault on the commons, it, I found it kind of interesting that, that you would say, well, no, like, let's not let's not put a number on acreage of rainforest in that way, but at the same time, we, we need to find a way to financially balance the biodiversity that we have extracted from these communities without their consent. Yeah, um, well, you, you had originally asked me how I got to this topic. Um, well, in addition to what I said previously, uh, another important um, background part of my story is that I got involved with the climate justice movement um, so I went to Cochabamba in Bolivia for the World People's Conference on Climate Justice and the Rights of Mother Nature in 2010, and that was based on some writing I'd been doing about the climate justice movement and you know some activist work I'd been doing. Um, and then I, I went to a number of the United Nations Conference of Parties summits, you know, which happen annually, uh, and at which there are always really important counter summits where members of Climate Justice Now and other climate justice activist movements come together to push for better negotiations, but also to kind of come together as a global grassroots movement. And so a lot of the positions that I sketch out in the book and that you were just summarizing come out of the arguments that I've heard activists in the climate justice movement making around these kinds of financializing moves. So particularly important for me have been the arguments by indigenous activists like the folks with the Indigenous Environmental Network who point to the ways in which attempts to stem deforestation by commodifying forests globally really don't work. Um, and uh, not only don't work, not only do they not halt deforestation, but they often lead to increasing numbers of uh, what get called conservation refugees. In other words, you know, if you pay a country not to chop down a forest, what often happens is that you know, the leaders of a country will push the people who live in the forest, who are often indigenous people, um, out of the forest and let big lumber companies come in and log the forest. <laughs> 
and put up eucalyptus plantations and say, look, you know, we're preserving the forest. Um, and so there's a lot of corruption there and uh, a lot of inequality and, frankly, a failure to stem deforestation. So that's what's behind my critique. Um, and I think that I'm in solidarity uh, in articulating that critique with the policies which environmental activists in the Climate Justice Network uh, have been laying out. Um, and I think just kind of empirically, there's also lots of evidence for why this doesn't work. I mean, um, take the European carbon trading policies uh, of the last half decade or so. You know, the, the price of carbon keeps crashing um, because it, it's just not a viable system ultimately. Um, so, you know, both in terms of what's been happening on the ground and uh, in terms of people's moral and cultural opposition to the idea of turning the environmental commons into a gigantic market, create a kind of green capitalist solution to the current crisis. But then how does that, um, how do you see providing a universal basic income, or not a universal basic income, but a basic income tailored to people living in areas whose biodiversity has been ravaged by global capitalism, how, is, how do you see that as distinct uh, politically, economically, and practically from from those other kind of ecosystem service quantification approaches. I mean, it seems like it's, 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 it has its uh, very similar potential for corruption and, and sort of like misapplication and that kind of thing. Yeah, possibly so. Um, it's a thought experiment based on the idea of climate debt um, and reparations, which is, again, an argument that the climate justice movement has been making. So I'm not alone in making this argument. I think what I added to the conversation was to suggest that a model of a guaranteed income to peoples in the global south should be focused specifically on the so-called um, biodiversity hotspots, you know, areas where there's a particularly large concentration of biodiversity. Um, and that this might be a way to get around some of the corruption in the current mechanisms. Um, so the way that the mechanisms currently work is that they go through the state. Um, you know, the money's funneled from international organizations to particular nation states. And, and those states are often quite corrupt. Um, and so the idea of a guaranteed income would be to force large corporations to pay some kind of percentage of their profits or to um, put a tax on uh, global capital transactions, which would funnel the money directly to people in the global south. So I think that you're right. There could be problems with this and the, with the way it's implemented. Um, and most of all, the biggest problem I see is that it doesn't really abolish the capitalist system. And so it would be a kind of intermediary step and I would admit that and you know would recognize that there might be some problems that would issue from that however I, I don't want to come across as someone who's saying we have to wait for the revolution to do anything you know I think we do need to take a whole series of quite concrete steps and so I see what I'm proposing is one uh, hopefully quite creative uh, step that we can take to move us towards uh, the world we, we want to inhabit. 
This is reminding me, in a way, of the quote from Buckminster Fuller, uh, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. Uh, to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And I feel similarly in my defense of building a new model and the necessity of, of doing so as not a, uh, a series of half steps or adjustments to the existing model or, or viewed as uh, something that needs to be either done or not, but as building the groundwork within the, uh, the infrastructure currently available. An image that comes to mind is uh, a tree that has uh, got a fissure and is rotting a little bit from one side, and you see mushrooms, you know, uh, fruit uh, every season out of it, and slowly that tree is devoured and replaced by the mycelic mat, which then gets recycled back into the soil. And in a way, these, these models that have uh, popped up to take advantage of, of new niches feel similar to me when, when uh, viewed as a, as a model or as a system. Uh, mm-hmm. And the same could be said of, of Uber and uh, Airbnb, and now these, these more peer-to-peer financial uh, exchange mechanisms that were not available before for goods and services. Uh, even things like PayPal and, and Bitcoin and other decentralizing agents uh, are taking advantage of existing fissures that are present. And uh, I do feel, though, that we basically need a, an entirely new way of looking at it instead of commodifying everything. I, I, I just don't feel comfortable with that as a solution because it sounds eerie to commodify everything to, to ascribe value, even in a democratized fashion to acreage versus individual species, which is equally, if not more, creepy. But I understand the logistics and, and the opportunity potentially as a temporary niche uh, to develop something new okay. and to create new uh, ideas based off of things that we can't imagine yet because we haven't tried them. So it's worth okay. trying. It's worth trying. And, and uh, anybody interested in this stuff who, who is just dialing in and, and maybe not as familiar with some of the, the terms that we're using, including the uh, Global South and things like the Globalization Project. Feel free to pick up a textbook on the subject at some point. This one's actually really good. Uh, it's called uh, Development and Social Change by Philip and Michael, and that's a more textbook-level view of global socioeconomics. So if you're interested in this, this kind of stuff and some of these terms are new to you, uh, feel free to, uh, to browse some materials out there. We might post some links and maybe some, uh, some books in the description for the podcast. So that is our subject today for the most part, though. We're getting pretty deep into it. So, Michael, as always, I'm sure you have a, a great question for the next round here. May I just, may I just interject? Uh, of course. Your, your, your idea of sort of um, transformation, I think, is a really important one to keep in mind. Um, but I guess I would say that there are two different dimensions to this. I mean, one is temporal and the other is um, spatial. Um, and in terms of time, the big problem with climate change is that uh, it's a form of slow violence, right? You know, we know that it's going to be a lot worse. We know the glaciers are melting and that most of the world's coastal cities are going to be flooded at some point in the future. We just don't know when um, and we don't know how fast that's all going to take place. And so it's as if the, the, the violence and the disruption is on its way, but not quite here. And so I think in some ways, um, it, we need imagination and a kind of ethical capacity to connect with the future that we aren't really programmed to have um, in order to understand the gravity of the crisis um, and the kinds of changes that are going to happen as a result of it. And, but I think that thinking in terms of space is helpful in that regard because for 
many people of the global south, you know, people of countries like Bangladesh, for instance, or Syria, the crisis is already here. You know, I mean, the, the Syrian civil war, um, many analysts have said, was sparked off by uh, a major drought that lasted for over a decade. Uh, much of the agriculture in the country became unviable and people had to move to cities and then, you know, uh, conflict was sparked out of people's lack of access to basic resources like grain. Um, so as everyone knows, you know, millions of people have been displaced out of Syria um, and uh, the wealthy nations like the European Union countries are putting up borders and uh, hundreds of people are dying in the Mediterranean basically every week trying to cross to the wealthy countries. So I think the crisis is, is already here for a lot of people. As many kind of radical changes to anticipate the world we'd like to have, but we also have to really fight against the reactionary forms of response to that incipient world that we see uh, growing up around us all the time. Um, and I, I think people need to be clear that uh, there really are forms of kind of eco-fascism um, developing around us that uh, need to be uh, really, really fought hard against. Mm, yeah, some of the best science fiction that's coming out lately has actually been about that. I think it was, I, I'd, I'd have to look for it, but I think Robert Charles Wilson was the author of uh, a recent book examining an eco-fascist America uh, you know, in, in 50 or 100 years' time and you know uh, how that, that particular rhetoric can actually lead to a much worse system, you know, a much greater capacity for evil than we've actually even experienced so far. Uh, William Irwin Thompson wrote about that in his in 1972 in a book called uh, Evil and World Order, and basically basically made the case that systems management thinking is uh, the problem because it represses its shadow opposite, like that it's it, it's involved in this tango. Uh, between the sort of scientific approach, the attempt to quantify everything, to appropriate it for, you know, transactional use, but then also this mystical acceptance of the unconscious, the unknown, the the uh, unquantifiable, right. and you know he he poses systems management and uh, like a planetary mystical renaissance in opposition to one another and says that basically in, in 1972 he actually said at the time when, when it finally happens because he actually knew Morris Strong, the, uh, the undersecretary of the, the UN he says that you know, there, there's going to be a day not too far from now where we're going to start meeting to have conversations about the, the global body politic if the first item that's addressed by this global convention is not its capacity for evil by attempting to exert sort of autonomous ego head control over all of the, the wild you know, and mysterious aspects of the, the body individually and collectively, it, it creates this equal and opposite reaction. There is this balance innately, and if we, if we consciously deny half of it, and it it, uh, it comes back like a like a demon in a bad dream or something. But it's that what we're seeing right now in the world in these global climate talks, and in this attempt to to render our environments as manageable ecosystems. In Christian Sfragrel's argument that there is no wilderness anymore, 
and that we have to sort of accept this fact. And our modern society seems to have sort of dismissed as survivalist Utah gun bunker kooky you know, talk, which is, you know, the, the, this issue of the new world order. It's odd to me how few people recognize critically the capacity for this kind of global change with all of its best intentions, you know, without, without any sort of, you know, without having to assume that we are trying to manipulate people, to control the markets. You know, it's, it's hard for people to understand how out of the best intentions to preserve, you give a really uh, excellent critique of rewilding and de-extinction in this book, and it seems like that's the natural place to take this conversation, mm -hmm. because it's like, because you show how uh, certain values sort of stow away with these noble projects and end up creating all sorts of unforeseen and horrible complications, mm -hmm. or at least potentially could, you know. Yeah, yeah, so... Um... I try to show how the idea of de-extinction is a kind of Trojan horse because, uh, you know, if you're going to bring uh, some kind of an extinct species back from extinction, like the woolly mammoth, for instance, or even the passenger pigeon, um, for it to be anything other than a kind of um, trophy, an individual trophy, you would have to deal with the depletion of the habitat that that species wants uh, existed within, and precisely the opposite is happening. You know, we're we're destroying more and more of the habitats on the planet. Um, just yesterday, I was uh, fighting with severe depression because of uh, a really crushing article in the Guardian about the uh, bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef off Australia. I don't know if uh, you you saw that article, but um, it's really shocking. Something like two thirds of the barrier reef is now dead uh, just in the last year as a result of the El Nino warming, um, but connected to climate change. So obviously the barrier reef is the equivalent of a tropical rainforest in the ocean and, and we're acidifying the ocean and warming it to the point where life is <laughs> crashing there. Uh, and what's happening to the reef is an example of that. So what does it mean to be investing a huge amount of capital and putting a lot of media attention on some effort to bring an extinct species back from oblivion when this massive habitat destruction is going on. And the habitat destruction is driven by the need to keep accumulating and keep burning fossil fuels in order to do that. So that, that's what I bring up in the book. And I put the uh, extinction in the context of a big shift that's been going on uh, over the last few decades into what I call biocapitalism, which is essentially an effort to make money through commodifying uh, not just the world um, around us on a kind of macro level, but also the micro level of the genome, human and otherwise. And I say that that's really a, a huge problem, which needs to be tackled, and it's just not being regulated. And that sort of comes back to your original point uh, and some of the previous elements of our discussion. One of the problems of a kind of networked world, which we imagine as a kind of liberatory space, um, you know, the kind of peer-to-peer -peer networks that Rushkoff is talking about, is that they also have facilitated 
a big brother state, which George Orwell could never have imagined in terms of its profusion and ability to peer into our everyday lives. And even supposedly, you know, liberal protagonists on the global uh, stage like um, Barack Obama have done nothing but intensify this and persecuted any whistleblowers like Edward Snowden. So these new technologies have also facilitated the growth of a kind of very shadowy dark state, uh, security state and surveillance state. And in tandem with that, we've seen the dismantling of redistributive aspects of the state. And it's often been as a result of precisely the kind of rhetoric that you were referring to earlier, Michael. I mean, I haven't read the particular work that you were talking about, but I have been very much interested in Friedrich von Hayek, who's one of the grandfathers of neoliberalism. Um, and, you know, he sort of developed this idea that the state should step back from the economy and let it just happen the way it wants to happen. He used uh, contemporary biological understandings of ecosystem resilience. Um, and, and that idea of ecosystem resilience is really pervasive now. So you see people involved in disaster relief using ideas of creating kind of community resilience. You see people in the defense industry talking about making sort of military operations as resilient as possible. And there's also this idea that capitalism itself is resilient. So we shouldn't worry about a crash and the people who get victimized by it because capitalism will bounce back and um, <laughs> everyone will be better off. So I'm, I'm really concerned about the way these kinds of metaphors travel from biology into other spheres and get used to legitimate forms of um, dispossession of the global 99% by the 1%. That's a huge issue when you look at the history of, of evolutionary philosophy. And, you know, in the, in the 19th century, just as, as kind of an, you know, uh, an example we can pile on this, you know, it was uh, Charles Darwin was acknowledged as a co-author along with Alfred Russell Wallace in the original publication to the Royal Society of the, the paper on natural selection. Now, like, what ended up happening was, you know, D Darwin was a made man, he inherited a lot of wealth, he pursued this biological hobby as a way to keep himself busy, whereas Alfred Russell Wallace was a working class guy who was collecting specimens and selling them to museums as a way of supporting his, his inborn passion for this research. Darwin, you know, gradually built his hypothesis over 20 years, you know, uh, and, and Wallace, uh, it came to him in a fever dream while he was suffering from a malarian fever in, in the Pacific Islands. So you have this sort of, this, uh, this really awesome uh, counterpose of characters, one who is more or less aristocratic and, and capitalist by disposition, one who is more or less uh, socialist and socially minded by disposition, and, and actually Wallace spent a good deal of his life using his, his uh, emphasis on the selection of the group in biology and social selection to argue for the adoption of socialist policies in England. Uh, this is at a time right around the time of the Enclosure Act, you know, and the loss of the commons through so much of, of that region. And yet history sort of ignores Alfred Russell Wallace and remembers and, and exalts Darwin in a large part due to the way that his work was uh, misappropriated to justify or, or apologize for exactly this kind of predatory capitalism that you're talking about, the, you know, the laissez-faire, like a la nature takes care of itself 
approach. The one part of your book, if I may, that I took issue with is that um, you mention in here the work of Ilya Prigogine. This is cool. I, I, I hope that we are able to constructively wiggle around on this particular issue. Um, you mentioned that your concern, people taking the work of this Russian chemist, Ilya Prigogine, who's who was studying self-organizing chemical systems, the idea of dissipative structures, so that like the, the metabolism of an organism is a stable vortex, like a whirlpool, sort of. The parts of that organism do not remain the same over time. They're constantly moving in and out. But the organism as system, in this particular sense, you know, exists in this, this sense, you know, appears to create order from lower levels of order. And, and, and you mentioned that, that uh, you know, biocapitalist neoliberal ideologues are using this to justify a, an endless expansion of capitalism because the idea of autopoiesis and self-organizing dissipative structures, this uh, myth that has come in to pose itself against the idea of entropy and the universe just sort of running down the drain into nothing, that the extropian view is that it's the it's the exact opposite. It's that you know we're climbing up into these higher levels of order. This is a view that you know you see espoused by people like Jesuit paleontologist Pierre Terre de Chardin, you know, in his talk about moving towards an omega point, at which point you know like the the universe is organizing itself into one giant mind. And uh, for people like one of the biologists that was working at the University of Kansas when I was studying there. Uh, Edward Wiley wrote a book called Evolution as Entropy. It, it sort of shocked me, given that this is an area uh, of such personal interest. I almost felt like I was being called out for something that I did not feel was completely fair, because my understanding has always been that that process, the, the metabolic uh, process of life, is something that, that operates on entropy it doesn't uh, transcend it and it seems like that's actually an instance where to the extent that that idea is being carried forward by like nature hating singularity fanatics in Prigogine's case like you know a Russian scientist during the, the Cold War you know it's like he's he's not he's not somebody that was coming at this you know as a proponent of the capitalist appropriation of the natural commons yeah, no, look, fair enough. I, I don't mean to impugn him specifically, and I, I think I, I, I certainly don't go after him the way I do um, some other scientists. Yeah, you know, the inventor of the modern scientific method who describes um, nature as, as a, a woman who we have to put on the rack and torture in order to extract secrets from her. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty uh, dire way to begin the scientific method and scientific inquiry. But uh, um, while science obviously can potentially create sustainable systems, uh, all too often it's been used to do exactly the opposite and doesn't tend to think in the kind of holistic way that we would want it to. Um, I didn't mean specifically to go after Prigogine, though. I think that what I was talking about was the way that his work and the work of other biologists who worked on these ideas of sort of resilient systems got taken up um, uh, by neoliberal economists. Um, and I would talk specifically about the Santa Fe Institute, which Friedrich von Hayek was involved with, which used some of these ideas, I mean, often didn't completely understand them, but appropriated them 
in a way that served the goal of advancing the rationale for a kind of unfettered capitalism, which, of course, you know, President Reagan and subsequent political leaders were implementing at the time. Um, and in terms of the sort of impact of all of that, I mean, I would just say, if you look at what's happened over the last 500 years as a result of capitalism, it, it's really a huge destruction of biodiversity. I mean, we could talk about the Columbian Exchange when you know, the New World, quote-unquote, was discovered and Columbus and the other conquistadors brought all sorts of organisms to uh, the New World from Europe that decimated biodiversity in the New World, um, all the way up to the invention of factory farming and the Green Revolution. And if my book, Extinction, is about anything, it's about the way in which we aren't evolving to some more in incredibly biodiverse kind of existence, but in fact we're seeing this massive leveling down and great die-off going on um, at the moment. And uh, I think that that's a, a huge tragedy and has to be seen in kind of political economic terms. The conversation with, uh, with our friends and especially in our generation and younger can sometimes become incredibly dire because of the uh, intensity of the discussion and, and almost the resignation that I think a lot of young people feel towards the situation. So it may be uh, somewhat nihilistic in nature, but the perspective that this is all somewhat inevitable and perhaps ultimately beyond our control, uh, beyond our scope uh, of understanding when it comes to ethics, morality, and, and eventuality, that for all we know we could be once again taking part uh, either complicitly, explicitly, knowing or unknowingly in what is an inevitable collapse and, and rebound of biodiversity on Earth and a complexification of our genome information that will be handed down in various forms in ways that we can't understand, uh, you know, so that we might at some point be as different from all of this uh, as the birds are from the dinosaurs. And appropriately enough, again, hearing the birds in the background of uh, your, your current locale there on vacation, Ashley, um, it's, it's an interesting way to think about uh, time, but I do think there is a certain, again, moral resignation and a loss of motivation to engage in a more positive uh, set of interactions with your world and, and appreciation thereof as well. I think the, the appreciation is literally what it comes down to for me because one of my favorite parts about being in the forest, for instance, is the sense of magic, the sense of uh, things being at peace and, and, and a deep sense of order, extremely messy on the surface perhaps, but uh, feels entirely devoid of judgment and, and uh, absent of economic, arbitrary, uh, imaginary, mathematical systems, etc. Um, it, it is what it is, but uh, that's a pretty common conversational uh, direction, again, with respect to this topic, especially with, with young people, is the sense of this being almost inevitable and then it not being stoppable. So what would you say to that? Yeah, no, I think that you're right. And I think there's also a lot of burnout around coping with the climate crisis, of which I think extinction is uh, an intimate part um, uh, among people in the affluent Western nations. I mean, again, I would say having a sense of... Um, What's happening in other parts of the world is important here because, um, you know, indigenous people in the Amazon whose uh, lands are being flooded by a new hydro dam aren't sitting around desperate. You know, they're, they're fighting <laughs> for their very existence. Um, and so I think it's useful to remember those people. But 
I think that the changes also need to be seen as happening here too. I mean, earlier on, Michael was talking about science fiction novels, which show the kind of Malthusian impact of climate crisis and extinction in the future. But I, I don't think we even need to look that far into the future. Um, Andrew Ross has a great book called Bird on Fire about uh, the city of Phoenix, where he talks about the ways in which there are these extremely xenophobic movements in contemporary Phoenix that use a kind of Malthusian environmental rhetoric. In other words, you know, there are too many people to be supported on the land right now. Um, we were here first, so we can't let anybody else in, and we should send all the people who, you know, are not white, is the implicit argument, and sometimes the explicit argument, back to wherever the hell they came from. Well, obviously, they're huge problems. Most of all, <laughs> that white people weren't the original inhabitants of um, Phoenix or any other part of the Americas. Um, the sort of general way in which these fascist movements are using environmental arguments to... Um, shore up a kind of racist and almost always also highly sexist set of perspectives. And so I think that the kind of feeling of despair about some impending future that people feel can be countered by pointing to the struggles for social justice that are out there on the ground all around us that people are fighting and um, encouraging people to find meaning in the struggle for justice, because I think that's ultimately how we can push away the sense of despair. It's by um, getting engaged in, uh, in the fight. That's where meaning comes from, and that's where hope comes from. Yeah, and I would say even in the worst-case scenarios, the full-on extinction of humanity, along with a lot of uh, the rest of uh, our fellow species on Earth, and then the million-year-plus evolution to something greater than ourselves that comes next. That, that's, again, the worst-case scenario and may not generally or necessarily go there. It's quite possible, given recent events, especially looking at the, the bleaching uh, of the Great Barrier Reef, etc. But the really interesting thing about that is, is looking at you know, the old uh, demonstration of, of chaos theory by um, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, uh, the the slight difference. Of you got the points for Jurassic <laughs> right. Park in this conversation about gene patenting and extinction. Yes. Why not? Right. And and uh, you know bringing back things as a trophy instead of as a acknowledged uh, penance for our sins, so to speak. But looking at the uh, the chaos theory demonstration of the the slight uh, angular difference of hairs informing the uh, the binary shift of the water moving from one direction to the other. We have, uh, I think, a unique opportunity, given the complexity of the situation and, and the, the entropy and the, the chaos inherent in this like frothy cultural dynamic right now, especially, uh, and just to date this a little bit, uh, uh, Hillary supposedly, we'll see, uh, clinched the nomination for the Democratic uh, spot on the ticket for the presidency this, this November. Um, so <laughs> that, that being said, uh, we have an opportunity to shift things perhaps in, in moments of deep chaos and entropy in ways that uh, act as multipliers or force multipliers, accelerators of uh, inputs. And, and that's part of what makes me personally feel motivated to engage in things like this podcast and in making music and in uh, you know, making money so I can feed my cats because I love having them here. This, the, the pragmatic things that I can do now uh, that may yet make a difference and, and we just honestly don't know, so why not try, basically? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's important not to be overwhelmed 
by the situation and to do what you can. Um, but I think it's also important to be clear that what we need is and what we're fighting for is structural change, you know, that, that individual consumer decisions and even individual consumer guilt and angst um, aren't commensurate with the challenges that we face. So if you're forced to continue to drive because you live in a city where there's no adequate public transportation, you shouldn't become overwhelmed and feel completely depressed by that. What we have to fight for is decarbonization of the global economy. And so if you can go out and do something to make that happen, you know, um, block the construction of a coal-fired power plant, then eventually we'll create a world where people don't feel individually culpable and, uh, you know, feel despair as a result of that culpability with an unsustainable world. I don't know if you could hear the airplane flying overhead. Yeah, that's a that's a fine example of our our uh, anthropocenic context. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the uh, the fact that we have surrounded ourselves like some sort of mollusk with an environment of our own accumulation. We start by hearing uh, the birds. Yeah, the, the flying. You know, the uh, evolutionary yeah. <laughs> leverage. Yeah, which one was louder? Uh, versus <laughs> exactly. the yeah the technologically leveraged flight enabled species here. Yeah, the the humans definitely succeeded at being louder and bigger. Uh, but is that better? Um, they're not as pretty. Uh, airplanes can be cool, but they also don't make music generally when they fly. Uh, at least I haven't seen that been done yet. Uh, so we'll get on that. <laughs> I've definitely experienced. It, you know, a significant amount of the uh, consumer guilt that you're talking about. And to cite uh, William Irwin Thompson again, you know, he had a quote. It was in his Lindisfarne tapes, again from the 70s. But he said, in order to have books, we must destroy forests. You know, and there's like this, this sense that there's like this kind of cruel irony of like getting this important message out and the fact that you have to use the system that's in place to do it. You know, and like I actually did not find your book on Amazon. I had to order it direct from the publisher. But then, what you know, what the hell is it? Black magic for them to name this enormous book retailer Amazon as if it's just sort of like, you know, sucking the physical Amazon out and replacing it with this sort of idea, this digital, virtual Amazon, yeah. you know, and, and a media ecosystem. So like, <laughs> yeah. So clearly, like I, I have to do something with these thoughts. I have yeah. to like make this okay for myself, and the way that I've managed to do that, at least uh, temporarily, is by rather than rather than what we're seeing happen on the world stage, which is colonializing ecology with capitalism, you know, using the the means of capitalism to, to manage ecosystems. Uh, I thought, well, what if we what if we colonialize capitalism with ecology? You know, in the same way that you see religions sort of take up the gods of the religions that they have conquered into the minor pantheons of their own practice, that it seems like it's, it's perhaps best to understand all of uh, the human economic activity as a subset of the metabolic processes of the planet as a superorganism and understand that, that all of this within this thing. But the, the, then, of course, the problem is 
that as soon as we have this metaphor that recasts our extinction crisis as part of a periodic natural process, like you specifically talk about this in the book, you say re regarding the neoliberal ideology of uh, that, that misappropriates order out of chaos, you say, again, like life, capitalism is said to be characterized by a series of catastrophic crises that ultimately generate new forms of complexity, as do mass extinction events in evolutionary history. And yet that seems to be, looking back on that, that seems to be the case. What I'm, what I'm seeing is this movement in evolutionary theory from regarding extinctions as purely the loss of biodiversity and rather as this sort of periodic like prairie fire that restores, that, that sort of clears up clogged ecosystems in which every niche is occupied and like returns the nutrients to the soil, so to speak and then creates this new opportunity like we saw with uh, you know, the, the evolution of a new, a new form of a metabolism. Two billion years ago, this was like the zeroth mass extinction. It's not really counted in the numbering, but we had the, the great oxygenation event, you know, the, the emergence of photosynthesis. And so over hundreds of millions of years, anaerobic microbes polluted, you know, they just pumped oxygen into the atmosphere. It's the exact opposite problem that we're having now, which is kind of an interesting counterpoint because they basically set the world on fire and drove the rest of the surviving anaerobic life below the surface and created this, this new resource, which life regarded as, at the time, regarded as a, as a, as a poison and as you know, pollution in the way that we would think about it. But then from that emerged the aerobic animal metabolism and then this new balance was created between animals that were respiring one another's wastes, you know? And so it seems like there's, there's hope in, in what we have now that the way that we can turn this around is by regarding our economic systems as having at least the potential to become these closed loop metabolic processes where the wastes of one industry are supporting the wastes of another, sort of allowing the endless accumulation to work within a cyclical rather than a, like an ecocidal linear model, uh -huh. you know? And yeah. yet, and yet, I don't know, I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are on that and w whether you see that as, as working or not, what the, the problems I may have missed might be. Well, I think, first of all, that you're right that um, we need to have some kind of uh, perspective on the present and uh, if we really step back to some kind of uh, extraterrestrial um, sort of universe scale level this planet has been through a series of extinction events um, this is as most people probably know the sixth great extinction event in the history of the planet and uh, it's likely that earth will repopulate and that new forms of biodiversity of equal levels of beauty and complexity as the world that we currently inhabit will, will evolve. But the thing is, we're human beings, and we don't have a kind of universe-scale um, perspective. Uh, and there's also the question of who this we is. Mm. Um, when you talk about we, the danger, of course, particularly you know, from a post-colonial perspective, is that it's usually a white male European or Euro-American unmarked subject who's speaking uh, for everybody else. Of course, the climate crisis, including the extinction crisis, the great tragedy is that it's going to affect um, the people, plants, and uh, 
animals who are least responsible for uh, the, the crisis, first and foremost. And so I guess I would say we are morally called to fight capitalism and the destruction that it's creating, creating solidarity with, with those uh, vulnerable people around the planet and the ecosystems that they inhabit, which are being mown down by the capitalist systems that germinated in Europe and North America and which are now spreading around the globe. Um, so in, in terms of whether we can turn those systems towards more sustainable directions, I would say we have to try and do that in every possible way. Um, but we have to be on our guard against what I referred to earlier as forms of, of green capitalism. Um, and and they're, they're really rife. Uh, you know, everyone tries to put forward a way to make money out of the current crisis. That's how capitalism <laughs> works. Um, so, you know, authors like Paul Hawken and Amory Levins have books like Natural Capitalism, where they talk about kind of creating a new capitalist system through these sort of technological, supposedly green fixes. Um, and my criticism of that would be, as long as you have a system that's based on ceaseless, augmented accumulation on a finite planet, you're going to have environmental crisis. So some kind of technological, supposedly green capitalist solution ultimately isn't going to be the way out. And we have to be on our guard because, you know, as the kind of head in the sand climate change deniers lose traction in the face of increasing forms of climate chaos, we're going to hear more and more of these kind of green capitalist proposals to deal with the, with the crisis. And so I think we have to be more and more on our guard uh, against those kinds of false solutions, and we have to fight for genuine solutions. Yeah, let's okay. do some closing thoughts. Uh, Michael, if you want to uh, get your closer in, and we'll, we'll go from yeah. there. Yeah, I guess, you know, this all, this all comes back to me to um, Charles Eisenstein in the book Ascent, The Ascent of Humanity compares expansion of capitalism around the planet to the, the primary ecological growth of, like, weeds in an empty lot. It's, there's like all this linear growth that just comes out. It's unconcerned with diversity. It's not. Uh, it's it's sort of like a runaway chain reaction, and he compares that to the ecologically based economy that we could have, as as sort of like a mature old growth forest. And it's like there's still quite a bit of growth going on in that forest, but it's like Evan was talking about earlier. It's all coming out of the nutrients resupplied by the fall of what are called what Matthew Wright, uh, Episcopal minister in his talks on inner spirituality, compares the old religions to being like nursery trees and that what comes after them is sort of drawing on their, their accumulated wealth of resources, but doing so in a, in a way that is very much like the kind of redistribution that you, you advocate for in the book. So my sort of open question that probably will not get answered now and maybe not within my lifetime is in what ways can we organize our economic systems in terms of eco-mimicry to behave according to the wisdom that we observe or like, you know, project into the behavior of these wild ecosystems, you know, and then what does that, you know, what does that do, you know, how does that change the way that we, that we relate to money and to one another and that kind of thing. It's just a very curious line of inquiry and I'm really glad that you are exploring these questions in your book. Cool. Well, well, thanks again for, for being on, Ashley. We really appreciate it. And uh, 
looking at, again, the worst-case scenario of this uh, current extinction event wiping out human beings, uh, say if we try as hard as we can, maybe we wind up with a a future in which the next uh, evolutionary complexities are built off of really cool creatures like cuttlefish and we get to uh, mantis shrimp and, and great big giant awesome future birds and and uh, you know hyper monkeys uh, that that put us to shame. Or say we don't try it as hard as we can and and we still get wiped out. But then the future world is actually just a host of like ticks and stinging jellyfish and and wasps and and mosquitoes and things that would be nasty for for millennia. Uh, <laughs> would just make for a funny. Uh, exploration of inevitable futures in which either way we perish, but maybe we get a better future for everybody if we try. <laughs> so thanks again for being on, and, and I know it's uh, not easy to make light of this stuff, but it is kind of funny sometimes in the right perspective. Uh, and uh, we appreciate you uh, discussing this with us, because it's not the you know more simple conversation fluff to, uh, to go over by any means. Do you have anything you, that our distant descendants might appreciate? <laughs> distant descendants. Um... Well, I think that there were were people who (laughs) were trying to curb the ecocidal tendencies of the current civilization um, and to fight for some kind of justice, which I hope people in the future will recognize uh, as something that has some kind of transcendent claims um, beyond this particular time and place, even if it's those of us who inhabit the overdeveloped world who, at the moment, particularly North America, who have the greatest responsibility to engage in degrowth and to make climate justice happen by curbing our unsustainable practices. So I I hope that that kind of effort will be somewhat inspiring to the future. Like the morning doves in the background there, that was again an appropriate gesture on behalf of your environment. So (laughs) thanks again, Ashley Dawson and... uh, we look forward to maybe talking to you again on the future horizon in one fashion or another. Um, this has, again, been Future Fossils with uh, myself, Evan Snyder, and my co-host, Michael Garfield. And uh, we will talk to you guys again soon. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks again so much, Ashley. His book, Extinction, A Radical History, is available at orbooks.com. probably won't figure it out. I mean, probably one person in their lifetime never really does. And maybe even as a species, we won't have it figured out when, uh, you know, the time comes, whatever that means.